Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 30, Leviticus chapters 20 and 21. When we began Leviticus chapter 20 last week, We have to remember that its purpose was not to repeat the same laws that had been set down in the previous couple of chapters, although at first glance it kind of seems like that. Um, rather, this is what our modern court system would call the penalty phase. Okay? If a person is judged guilty of the crimes that are listed in this chapter then chapter 20 comes into play because it carries with it a parallel list of the required consequences for these actions. Often, unfortunately, that consequence is death. So let's reread a little bit of Leviticus chapter 20 together. And um, we'll do this in, in, in chunks tonight. We're going to read the first nine verses of Leviticus chapter 20. Adonai said to Moshe, Say to the people of Israel, If someone from the people of Israel or one of the foreigners living in Israel sacrifices one of his children to Molech, he must be put to death. The people of the land are stoning to death. I too will set my face against him, cut him off from his people, because he has sacrificed his child to Molech defiling my, sac uh, my sanctuary, profaning my holy name. If the people of the land just look the other way when that man sacrifices his child to Molech and fails to put him to death, then I myself, I will set myself against him, his family, and everyone who follows him to go fornicating after Molech and cut them off from their people. The person who turns to spirit mediums and sorcerers to go fornicating after them. I will set myself against him, cut him off from his people. Therefore, consecrate yourselves. You people must be holy, because I am Adonai your God. Observe my regulations. Obey them. I am Adonai who set you apart to be holy. A person who curses his mother or father must be put to death. Having cursed his father or mother, his blood is on him. Now, in the first part of verse 3, we get a fairly common but, but, but odd-sounding biblical phrase, I'll set my face against that man. Now, to set one's face against someone means the intent to inflict punishment. And the notion in this context is that the person who worships Moloch is going to die physically by being stoned. And in addition, he will be separated from God for all eternity. Spiritual death. And if the people who won't bring that criminal to justice uh, witness this, rather, and they, and they won't bring that criminal to justice, then God is going to inflict terrible judgments on that perpetrator for the rest of his days and then upon his physical death, disavow that person as being one of his people. I mean, well, it just doesn't get any worse than this. This is death at every possible level. And, and why is there this terrible threat of judgment for violation of these particular laws? 
Because the people of Israel, A, have committed idolatry, and B, have shown no respect for life by sacrificing their children to Moloch. Further, by God's own people having the audacity to worship a false god, they've defiled his sanctuary, the wilderness tabernacle, and profaned his holy name, and thus God's personal holiness was trespassed by their acts. And as we've seen over and over again, the Lord will protect his personal holiness at all costs. If he has to destroy the whole universe and start all over again to maintain the infinite level of holiness that is his very essence, he will. In fact, Revelation reveals that that's exactly what he's going to eventually do. Now, I have some time ago come to the conclusion that we get an entirely wrong perception of just what it means in Holy Scripture to defile God's holy name. Or when we say that we have done something in God's name or just as often in Jesus' name. It really doesn't mean to us, I think, what the Bible intends for us to understand. When it says here in Leviticus 20 that Israel defiles God's holy name by their sacrificing to Molech, it means that Israel perverts and misrepresents God's holy attributes. As the people of God, Israel and we are commanded to be holy in the same way that the Lord is holy. But how do we do that? How do we behave in a holy way and how can a mere man defile God's holiness? What does holy behavior look like? This concept of our being holy and thus mimicking God's attributes works hand in glove with the well-established principle that mankind was created in the image of God. And I would like to offer this definition of that term, the image of God. The image of God is the sum of all of his attributes. Let me say that again. The image of God is the sum of all of his attributes. While while all men are said to have been made in the image of God and expected to reflect that image in their daily life, most have fallen away and do not. The people who Jehovah has redeemed and set apart for himself are expected to mimic the Godhead as close as is humanly possible due to this special status that the Lord has bestowed upon them, upon us. Now, this is important, so bear with me on this. When we speak of the image of God, there are differing teachings on the subject, but they all tend to get bogged down by saying, well, the image of God means, see, that there's this spiritual aspect of the Lord that's present in man, and Christ represents the, the, the physical, fleshly aspect of, 
of God that's in men. And since God is eternal, therefore we were ideally made to be eternal and so on. That's usually the way it's talked about. And while all that's true, it misses the whole point, in my opinion. The point ought to be that God made man in such a way that we are to reflect God's attributes. And we're the only living beings on earth that he made with the capability to embody his attributes. God's attributes aren't really so much about what kind of being he is. In other words, is he, is he physical? Is he spiritual? Is he eternal? Rather, his attributes are about his character. In in the image of God, man was made to be mobile, to move around. We weren't made like the plants that are stuck in one spot during their entire life cycle. Like God, we were made so that we can make moral choices and even have preferences. We can discern good from evil. We aren't creatures who can react only by instinct. Man was given the ability to create, albeit not on the same level as the Lord. We were made to be masters of our domain, to hand out forgiveness and mercy, to bestow blessings upon others. We were made to be truthful and faithful. In the image of God, man was given the capacity to love and to hate, to accept and to reject. Man was meant to display heavenly enlightenment, to be righteous and to judge. Every one of these things that I've just listed to you are attributes of men because they're attributes of God. What all of these, rather, when all of these attributes are displayed, and our lives as directed by the Spirit of God, that is holiness. Therefore, when we think of the phrase that we see so often in the Bible, God's name, it is primarily referring to his attributes, his characteristics. When, When we come to somebody... In God's name, it means that we're to come to that person embodying and displaying his characteristics. We're to come to people in love and mercy and forgiveness and discernment and righteousness and truthfulness and judging right from wrong, all based on God's definition of just what those things are. When the Bible says that as believers we're to bear the name of Christ... It means that we're to bear Christ's characteristics. It doesn't mean that we're all supposed to have the fish symbol stitched on our shirt pockets or a Christian bumper sticker on our car or wear a jacket that proudly displays the church or mission group we're attached to. That's not what it's talking about. Therefore, when a person who publicly claims allegiance to, Yeho- to, to, or rather to Yeshua and to the God of Israel, when we behave in a manner that reflects something other than God's characteristics, like sacrificing to Moloch, 
we defile those holy characteristics of God that he's put into us. Those characteristics that we're supposed to be reflecting and upholding. So please, due to the modern, common, everyday usage of the word name as meaning only a formal form of identification of a person, from this point forward, mentally erase the word name when you come across it in Holy Scriptures and replace it with either the word characteristics or attributes and you'll get a much better sense of what it's getting at. Let's move on a little bit. All right, Deal with the matter of executing a criminal. Now let me share a difficult and for some unwelcome principle with you that Jehovah teaches us in Torah. To end the life of a person who takes innocent life, a murderer, is actually preserving life. To kill a person who violates God's holiness ordinances is actually preserving holiness. When we justly execute a murderer in accordance with God's laws, then two things are accomplished. God's justice has been served and this person who has a propensity to wantonly take life is no longer a threat. From the law's point of view, to execute a person who violates God's holiness in a severe enough way serves to rid the community of a virulent cancer that can spread and ultimately take spiritual life away from other individuals who might be swayed to do the same thing. From the family, from the community at large, even from the land. Because sin can even defile the land we live upon. I mean, remember, it's also a biblical principle that a land and its people are organically connected. It's only mankind's twisted notion of what compassion ought to be that seeks to take criminals who God says should forfeit their lives and instead we allow them to live. Because in doing so, we've chosen on some occasions not to take action against someone who has trespassed against God's holiness even though he's commanded it. By taking such a course... We are making our opinions greater than God's commands. In the Lord's economy, we have effectively sided with the guilty at the expense of the innocent and perhaps of future victims. Now, we're paying a terrible price in our society today for this arrogance. I mean, why is violence increasing? Because the violent are allowed to live. And harm more life, which is entirely against Jehovah's instructions to us. We have seen an amazing surge in crimes against children because we have this revolving door justice system that wants to give these perpetrators chance after chance after chance to go and harm more innocent lives instead of terminating the life of the violator. Why do we do this? Because our human sympathies override God's laws. Our way of thinking is 
better many innocents suffer than one guilty person is punished more than we're comfortable with. That's the truth of it. Now, let me be clear that I'm in no way advocating vigilante justice. Okay? Nor advocating that we disobey the law of our land. God has allowed mankind to set up governments to handle those matters in a just way. But the idea was that all human justice systems would be based on his laws and commands. When they are usurped and ignored, the intended human justice system crumbles and more life is damaged or lost, not less. We're we're watching this play out every day before our eyes. In our American system of government, it's important that we all obey the law. And I urge us to do so. And that we also do our best to put people into power who value God's laws more than man's intellect. But how we do that, how do we do that? If all the doctrine that we as believers have been taught and that many, frankly, of the more liberal Jewish sects have adopted has come to the conclusion that the Torah has been abolished. That the source document that was given to us for determining right from wrong and for how to mete out proper justice how to obtain and maintain holiness, how how to achieve active harmony with God in his creation, how do we accomplish any of this if we see it all as null and void? Hmm. I maintain that this is the chief problem not only with the world in general, but within the ever weaker institutionalized church as well. Well, anyway, let's move on. In verse 6, I can stay here all day. In verse 6, the penalty for turning to ghosts and, as it calls it, familiar spirits, the supposed spirits of dead people, is that God will punish that person by his own divine hand. Instead of Israel following their neighbors and doing such things as trying to contact the dead, they and we are to be sanctified and holy. Quite literally, we are to separate ourselves in order to be holy. Separate ourselves from who or what? From what Christians commonly call the world. All that does not bow down to the will of the Lord. From the God of Israel, we're to separate ourselves from. Alright, let's read a little bit more now of uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 20. We're going to read verses 10 through 21. 10 through 21. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that is, with the wife of a fellow countryman, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The man who goes to bed with his father's wife has disgraced his father sexually, and both of them must be put to death. Their blood's on them. If a man goes to bed with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They've committed a perversion, so their blood's on them. If a man goes to bed with a man, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood's on them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it's depravity. They're to be put to death by fire, both he and they, so that they will not be a depravity among you. 
If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death and you're to kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal and has sexual relations with it, you're to kill the woman and the animal. Their blood's on them. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and has sexual relations with her, and she consents, it's a shameful thing. They're to be cut off publicly. He has had sexual relations with his sister, and he'll bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with a woman in her uh, menstrual period and has sexual relations with her, he has exposed the source of her blood, and she has exposed the source of her blood. Both of them are to be cut off from their people. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister, your father's sister. A person who does this has had sexual relations with his close relatives. They will bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with his uncle's wife, he has disgraced his uncle sexually. They will bear the consequences of their sin and die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is uncleanness. He's disgraced his brother sexually, so they'll be childless. Starting in verse 10, running through verse 21, we're back onto the subject of sex. All right, or, or, or better, forbidden sexual unions. Okay. But just before that, the death penalty is ordained for one who insults or curses, depending on your translation, his or her parents. Actually, the active Hebrew word here is kalal. Kalal. And the sense of kalal is to make light of something. Not light of in the sense of making a bad joke. Making fun of something that should be a serious matter. Rather, it means literally light and heavy. Not giving something the proper weight it deserves. You know, what it's talking about here is not honoring one's parents as we should. We don't give it enough thought. It's real low on our list. We diminish its importance. You know, when we're young and living at home, that issue is primarily about respect and obedience. Once we're married and we have our own family, it's about respect and accepting their wisdom. Once the parents get older and their bodies are getting tired and they need some assistance, it's the respect of caring lovingly for them in their best interests. Okay. Of doing for them and then being discreet in dealing with their problems and their needs. You know, to do anything other than this for our parents, says Yehovah, we should die. See, what's interesting is that over time, man has turned God's laws upside down. We put people in prison long term for stealing money and property. God's way was for them to stay in society as a servant, if necessary, and pay restitution. We take violent people, feel sorry for them, and try to educate them into being better people. God says, destroy them. Because they're much too liable to kill or damage more life. We put our children above our parents. God says, put your parents above your children. Nowhere does the scripture make our children the most important things in our lives. Nowhere does the scripture say that if we dishonor our kids or don't do as well for them as we should, that we ought to be put to death. 
like for dishonoring our parents. And of course, this man-made philosophy has led to confusion and this steady downhill slide for our society. Now, what follows after that about parents is a list of more capital crimes, more crimes demanding the death penalty for violation that relate to improper sexual activity. First, adultery with a married woman. Both offending parties are to be burned to death. Okay. Please note this is a specific case. If a man cheated on his wife with an unmarried woman, it was different. Still very serious. But this was not the penalty. Okay. This is about a married man having sexual relations with a married with a woman married to another man. That's what this is specifically talking about. If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, both offending parties are to die. Now listen, this is not talking about a man having relations with his biological mother. Okay, this is assuming that his father's wife is what we today would call a stepmother. Okay. Third, if a man has sexual relations with his son's wife, both offending parties must die. If a man has sexual relations with another man, the crime of homosexuality, they shall both be burned up in fire. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, mother having both at the same time is what this is talking about. Okay, All three have to be burned up by fire. If a man commits bestiality, both the man and the beast shall be killed. If a woman commits bestiality, both the woman and the beast shall be killed. Well, this was the end of the list of capital crimes that are covered in this chapter. And we may see them as awfully severe and their punishments as frightfully archaic. Be that as it may, at the least we should take from this just how serious Yehovah takes these kinds of acts. Now, more sexual prohibitions follow in verse 17, but the penalty is different. The penalty may not seem as severe as death, but it's not far from it. It's being cut off. Karet. For all practical purposes, this is referring to a permanent excommunication from God. A spiritual excommunication from God. For the only holy nation and the only holy people is Israel. All others are by definition outside of a relationship with God and therefore they're marked for eternal destruction. Excommunication means that a person is removed from being a member of the holy group and assigned as a member now, of an unholy or common group. Well, here is a list of these very serious crimes for which you're not condemned to death, but they're still very, they have very serious punishments that go with them. First, a man cannot marry his natural sister. Both are kicked out of the community of Israel. If a man has sexual relations with a woman on her period, both are to be cut off from their people. I need to point out that this is about, first of all, an unmarried couple. All right, and second, that her cycle had already begun and both were very well aware of it. Okay. Third, if a man has sexual relations with his natural aunt, there is to be some type of unspecified punishment. 
If a man has sexual relations with an aunt by marriage, the woman shall be cursed with barrenness all of her days. If a man marries his brother's wife, now presumably due to bigamy or divorce, they will be cursed with childlessness. Now this is in contrast, by the way, to the laws of levirate marriage, okay, by which a man is duty-bound to marry his brother's widow if she had not produced a male heir. Okay. And the goal is for the wife to be provided with a son by means of now the brother-in-law. So the motive for a man marrying his brother's wife is at the heart of the matter. Let's read a little bit more of Leviticus chapter 20. We're going to read from 22 to the end. You're to observe all my regulations and rulings and act on them so that the land to which I'm bringing you will vomit you out. Do not live by the regulations of the nation which I'm expelling ahead of you because they did all these things, which is why I detested them. But to you, I have said, you will inherit their land. I'll give it to you as a possession of land flowing with milk and honey. I'm Adonai, your God, who has set you apart from other peoples. Therefore, you are to distinguish between clean and unclean animals, between clean and unclean birds. Do not make yourselves detestable with an animal, bird, or reptile that I've set apart for you to regard as unclean. Rather, you people are to be holy for me, because I, Adonai, am holy. I've set you apart from other peoples so that you can belong to me. A man or a woman who is a spirit medium or a sorcerer must be put to death. There to stone them to death. Their blood will be on them. The last few verses tell us something important. Particularly for our time. God is transferring control of the area known at that time as the land of Canaan to the Israelites. It's not an arbitrary decision. As it says in verse 23, don't live by the regulations of the nations which I'm expelling ahead of you because they did all these things, which is why I detest them in the first place. What happens if Israel does emulate the Canaanites? instead of being obedient to the ways of the Lord. Verse 22 says you're to observe all my regulations and rulings and act on them so that the land will vomit you out. And within 500 years from the time of Moses, that's exactly what's going to happen. Not the least reasons, by the way, for it, being the examples I showed to you last week about King Solomon bowing down to Molech at the same time he was supposedly bowing down to Jehovah. And kings Manasseh and Ammon demanding later on all Israelites to bow down to Molech. And then this constant flirtatious love affair so many Hebrews and their leaders had with a significant number of false gods from among the community of foreigners that lived with them and near them. And then this really interesting statement is made, which explains without reservation exactly why God established the laws of clean and unclean as it pertains to food and sacrifice and other matters. You know, it's not often 
in the Bible that we're told directly why on much of anything. Which is why I tell you not to look for why. But look again at the end of verse 24 and then on into verse 25 it says this. I am Adonai your God who has set you apart from other peoples. Therefore, as a result of this, you're you're to distinguish between an unclean animals. This translation is alright because it makes the connection between God setting clean Israel apart from the unclean world and likewise Israel is to set clean things apart from unclean things. But the way this is usually translated misses the strong statement that's being issued here. If I add back in a couple of key words in Hebrew, it'll help make my point. Okay? The original Hebrew says, I am Yehovah your God who has badal, B-A-D-A-L, badal you from other people. Therefore, you are to badal between clean and unclean animals. The point is that the exact same Hebrew word is used to denote the separating Israel from the world as it is for the clean and unclean animals that Israel was to separate the clean from the unclean. And we've been told all along that Israel has no special merit of its own in order for them to be called clean as opposed to everyone else being called unclean. God simply chose. So too is the matter of clean and unclean animals. No animal merited of its own to be called clean as opposed to other animals that merited being called unclean. God just chose. And as a result, God looks with favor, special favor, upon Israel and without favor upon the other nations of peoples. Now, to emulate God, Israel's to look upon those animals that God has declared clean with special favor and to look without favor on those who God has declared unclean. See, as we've discussed over and over, Jehovah divides, elects, and badal separates. That's the sense of the word badal. To separate. To make a distinction. Let's move on to chapter 21. As we've seen throughout Leviticus, some of the laws were directed to the priesthood, others to the people in general. And whereas chapter 20 was talking to the whole congregation of Israel, chapters 21 and 22 now return to being instructions to the priests. And as a reminder now, the priests all came from what tribe? That's right, the the Levites. But was every Levite a priest? No. Only certain families within the tribe of Levi could be priests. And, and there were lesser priests, and there were greater priests, and there was one high priest. And each of these had to come from a specific family or a specific group of families. For instance, the high priest had to come from Aaron's line. And each of these classes of priests 
had specific duties assigned, which amounted to lesser duties and greater duties. So only the greater priests, for instance, could approach the altar and officiate the sacrifices. The lesser priests served in more menial ways, such as assembling and disassembling the wilderness tabernacle when it moved, or, or cleaning up the enormous volumes of blood and ashes that accumulated around the altar every day. And as we read chapter 21, I want you to notice that the first nine verses will speak to the ordinary priests, whereas the next five, 10 through 15, okay, will concern only the high priest. Because chapters 21 and 22 are, are really a unit. Probably shouldn't have a chapter marker between them anyway. They work together. They really never should have been divided. Okay. That said, we're going to follow the usual form and study the two chapters separately as taken together would just be too long, too much to digest all at once. So open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 21. I'm going to read it all. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the Kohanim, the priests, the son of Aaron, and tell them that no priest is to make himself unclean for any of his people who dies, except for his close relatives, his mother, father, son, daughter, and brother. He may also make himself unclean for his virgin sister, who has never married and is therefore dependent on him. He may not make himself unclean because he's a leader among the people. Doing so would profane him. Kohanim are not to make bald spots on their heads mar the edges of their beards, or cut gashes in their flesh. Rather, they're to be holy for their God and not profane the name of their God. For they are the ones who present Adonai with offerings made by fire, the bread of their God. Therefore, they must be holy. A Kohen priest is not to marry a woman who is a prostitute, who has been profaned or who has been divorced, because he is holy for his God. Rather, you are to set him apart as holy because he offers the bread of your God. He is to be holy for you because I, Adonai, who makes you holy, am holy. The daughter of a Kohen who profanes herself by prostitution profanes her father. She is to be put to death by fire. The Kohen who is ranked highest among his brothers, the one on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who is consecrated to put on the garments, is not to stop grooming his hair, tear his clothes, go into where any dead body is, or make himself unclean, even when his father and mother dies. He may not leave the sanctuary then, or profane the sanctuary of his God, because the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I'm at an eye. He is to marry a virgin. He may not marry a widow, a divorcee, a profaned woman, or a prostitute, but he must marry a virgin from among his own people and not disqualify his descendants among his people because I'm Adonai who makes him holy. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron, none of your descendants who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one with a defect may approach. No one who is blind, lame, with a mutilated face or a limb too long, a broken foot, a broken arm, a hunched back, has stunted growth, a cataract in his eye, festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No one descended from Aaron the priest who has such a defect may approach to present the offerings for Adonai made by fire. 
he has a defect, and he's not to approach to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the especially holy and the holy, only he is not to go into the curtain or to approach the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my holy places because I am Adonai who makes them holy. Moses said these things to Aaron, his sons, and to all the people of Israel. This chapter begins by dealing with the rather common reality of life. And that's death. (laughs) Within the Israelite population of three million, death likely occurred daily among the twelve tribes as they wandered in the wilderness. The Levite population at this time was probably the smallest of all the tribes. And a census taken in the book of Numbers, the male population of the Levites was about 22,000. But to attain even that number, the Levites had to count their population differently than all the other tribes counted their population. All the other tribes were to count only the men who were aged 20 years and up. There was also an upper age limit. It ended with those who were no longer able to carry weapons and fight. So for all the other tribes, only men from around 20 to 50, roughly, were counted. So there had to be thousands more males who were thus left out. Now the Levites, on the other hand, were to count all males from one month old and up. No upper age limit was imposed. So the entire Levite population, men, women, children, everybody, was likely only 75,000, maybe it was 100,000, but it was in that range. Therefore, death was still dealt with often among the priestly tribe of Levi, but certainly not as often as among the other tribes. So let's talk about death and decay of the body for a little while since it has everything in the world to do with God's plans you see death is an abomination to God yet apparently death didn't always exist before we talk specifically about the Levite rules concerning dealing with their own dead and as a way of explaining God's hatred of death itself let me remind you about where death came from Death is a result of sin, says the word of God. And apparently, according to Genesis, death entered our universe, or at least it entered mankind, upon the first two humans, Adam and Eve, disobeying God and eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is death? Well, death means the end of existence. Physical death, the kind we're most familiar with, is the end of physical existence. But you know, there's another kind of death as well. Spiritual death. Spiritual death is either the end of our personal spiritual existence or it is our personal spiritual separation from God on a permanent basis or perhaps it's both. Good arguments can be made for either case. Here's the thing as regards our physical death. 
It happens most often because our bodies just begin to age, to decay. Okay? But regardless of the reason for our death, once we're dead, our bodies continue, the, continue this disintegration process back to the basic elements of the universe, which God metaphorically calls dust. In effect, however, that's actually the destiny of the entire universe and everything in it. Everything in our universe gets old and decays back to its elements. But unlike the non-human components of the universe, from animals to rocks to mountains to the stars to the air we breathe, there's no spiritual attribute in the makeup of those things. That is, a rock or a mountain doesn't have a spirit. So the future of everything in our universe, including mankind, as it stands today, is complete physical decay and death. The human being, though, has a type of spirit that lives on after physical death and decay. Now, that apparently is not the way the universe was supposed to operate and equally apparent. Eventually, the universe is going to actually cease to operate like that. Let me explain something to you that I think is helpful for understanding how the Lord made our universe to operate. We talked about this some time back, but won't hurt to talk about it again. Time is essentially the measurement of death and decay. Without decay, time doesn't exist. Let me say that again. Time is how the process of death and decay is measured, just as miles and feet or kilometers and millimeters are used to measure the three physical dimensions of objects. Like, I mean, rather like uh, length, width, and height. Okay. So time then is used to measure the de- the decay of physical objects. Things of the spiritual world can't be measured in feet and inches because they're not physical. Things of the spiritual world are not subject to time because spiritual things don't decay. No decay, no time. Okay. In fact, the most accurate clocks in the world use radioactive decay as their means of measuring time because it's the most sure and steady that we have. Therefore, it's important for us to grasp that when the Bible speaks of eternity or of the eternal, both of these being spiritual terms, It's not trying to express the concept of a really, really, really long time. Not at all. Rather, it means there is no time. It means that time has come to an end. It doesn't apply anymore. And in order for that to be, there can be no death. There can be no decay. And, of course, that's exactly what we're told about heaven and about the reformulated universe of our future. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And after that, and that comes after the present one is melted down to its elements and reformed. So the big question is, when did death and decay begin in our universe? A lot of argument about that. 
A good argument can be made that up to the moment Satan rebelled in heaven, sin and evil didn't exist. And therefore the entire universe operated on an entirely different principle than it does now. A universe that had no time component to it because death and decay wasn't built into it. A creation. Another argument can be made that since evil, which is sin, existed sometime actually before mankind was created. Lucifer, an angel in heaven, recall, rebelled before man was created. So sin predated man, at least in the spiritual world. That the universe was decaying even before God formed Adam. In other words, it was Satan's fault that initiated the decay of the universe and man's fall that brought death and decay to man. Now, it's my position that the effect of Adam and Eve's fall was patterned after Satan's fall. Satan's fall apparently affected the whole universe by initiating decay, a universe that at that moment of Satan's rebellion had no physical life in it. Adam and Eve's fall affected the living creatures that Yehovah eventually created that consisted of humans and those kinds of animals that Yehovah calls living beings. Adam and Eve's fall initiated the decay of all living creatures, humans included. Satan's fall could have occurred billions of years before Adam and Eve's fall. He could have lived on planet Earth when it was still dark and void. I mean, the thing is, while I grant you that this is just one one view of it, the Bible does not explicitly infer that death coming to mankind also affected the universe in general because only of Adam's sin. This is kind of an open question in theologians. The point is that God created a perfect universe. And then he created a perfect environment for his living creatures to live in. Decay and death was not natural in the beginning. Anything but. Death was an aberration brought into this infinite universe of ours by sin. And absolutely nothing in our universe today is exempted from its effects. That's why death and decay is such an abomination to Yehovah and why we should never, ever get comfortable with the concept of death. I mean, oh, we can be comforted with the knowledge that our eternal spirits will survive and live with our Lord provided we trust Him in the name of Yeshua. But never ever was it His intention for mankind to go through this awful process of aging and deterioration and in the end of our physical existence. Thank God for the grace he gives his people to endure it and the hope that lays beyond it. Well, back to our Levites. Since God's mediators, those who serve him, on Israel's behalf, the priests, were to be set apart and given a divine status above even the whole congregation of the set-apart people, the tribes of Israel, then the Levite priests would stay far away from death. Yet in his mercy, God did, did give those priests some access 
to dealing with the death of their close family members. And the rules pertaining to this is what we read about in the first few verses of Leviticus chapter 21. Now, since, since death is such an abomination to the Lord, a dead body is unclean. And as we've learned to touch a corpse, even objects that have come into contact with a dead body, could transfer that impurity to other persons, thereby making them ritually unclean. So it's, it is that verse 1 explains that a priest may in no way defile himself by contacting a dead person, even including members of his own family. For the Levites at this stage in their existence, that prohibition likely extended on to their clan at the least. But there were exceptions. And those exceptions were that a priest's natural mother, natural father, natural son or daughter, and his natural brother were exempted from this. In other words, no in-laws and no stepfamily were among these exceptions. His natural sister was even only included if she had never been married, was still living at home because authority over her had not yet been transferred to another man. Now to be clear, this entire don't touch a dead body rule extended to beyond simple contact. It was equally about priests even being excluded from burial ceremonies. So the idea here is that other than for the listed exceptions, a priest couldn't even participate in a funeral. Even more, they couldn't participate in the, 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 the usual and traditional mourning practices of that era, such as messing up your hair and tossing dust and ashes over, the, over your head and tearing your garment. Okay. Bottom line, priests were to have nothing to do with death except under carefully defined circumstances. The picture being painted so strongly for us is that death is not for God's servants. Okay. Death should be treated as what it is, an abomination to God's servants because death is an abomination to God. Okay, We'll move on a little further with chapter 21 next week.